What's up? And welcome back. This is episode four of the SportsBall.com podcast. This is episode four of season two. I'm your host, Jackson Williams, and it is now November. The undisputed king of all the months. The best month's month of the year. And if you disagree, I'm willing to fight with fists. Um, and not only is it just one of the best months of the year, it's one of the best months of the year for sports, which is what this podcast is about. You've got the middle of the NFL season where teams are starting to separate themselves and the playoff races become more defined, which is exciting every single week. It's more exciting as it goes. Um, we've got the second month of the NBA season where players are really kicking into overdrive after shaking off early season rust. Um, teams start to learn if they're going to work or fail. We've got drama that is year-round, but... We love drama anyway, so <laughs> we'll take it when we can get it. Uh, and then normally we would get, like, typically we'd get Game 6 and Game 7 of the World Series, but because it was fast this year, we get to look at the MLB offseason early, <clears throat> which sometimes can be just as exciting or more so than the regular season, or at least for baseball nuts like me, because <laughs> I just love the MLB offseason. Um, anyways, you've probably noticed that today... When this is posted, it will be Friday <laughs> and not the normal Tuesday posting. Um, that's because daylight savings time has fucked me up. <laughs> I just thought we'd get that out of the way right there. Uh, because I go to school up in Oregon, it gets t- it gets dark, like pitch black outside at like 4.30 p.m. So from 4.30 to like 5 a.m., it's just nighttime. And uh, it's just a nightmare. I can't, I'm too tired to like focus and do anything. But I'm here. It's Thursday. Um, November 8th, tomorrow will be Friday when you're hearing this, but we've got a bunch of stuff to get into this week, <laughs> so let's just do this fucking thing. Um, <clears throat> so I wanted to start this week's episode by going over the, some of the stuff I talked about in this week's um, Tuesday afternoon football column that I post every Tuesday, uh, if you couldn't tell, because there was some pretty exciting action from last week, especially in the Rams-Saints game. On Saturday... The Rams were the last remaining undefeated team in the entire NFL. They were undefeated heading into that game on Sunday, and they were prepping to play the New Orleans Saints, who were 6-1. The two teams, they've got high-flying, explosive offenses, and they've got pretty good defenses. Saints Saints have a really sneaky good defense. Rams have some big-name players. But when the sun set on Sunday, the Rams were no longer the last undefeated team in the NFL. None were left. Uh, it was just a perfect showing, that game, of what the NFL is about today. There was a whole lot of offense and excitement, so much so that you forget that there wasn't much, if any, defense to speak of. The Saints won that game 45-35, to and they were dominant. Scoring 45 in an NFL game is impressive on its own, but to do it against a team that many, including me, thought was the best team in the NFL, or at least the best team in the NFC by far and the Super Bowl favorite, is just that much more impressive. The Saints were led by Drew Brees, the 39-year-old, nearly 40-year-old quarterback, and they were just firing on all cylinder. Drew Brees completed 25 of 36 passes for 346 yards and four touchdowns with no picks. That's fucking incredible. (laughs) Like, that is a ridiculous stat line for any quarterback, but especially one who's 39 against one of the better defenses in the NFC. Um, And while he was great, There's no need to discount how great some of the pieces that he has around him are. Michael Thomas, his top receiver, was targeted 15 times, and he caught 12 of those balls for 211 yards and a 72-yard touchdown. Um, And on somewhat of a side note, 
Michael Thomas has low-key been one of the top five receivers in the NFL for each of the last three seasons that he's been in the league. And he's only been in the league for three seasons, so since he's entered, he's basically been a top five receiver. And he's mostly flown under the radar, at least until this last week. Um, But I just want to point out that I knew he was special back in 2016 when I had him on my fantasy team. I knew he was special because I dropped him the week before he broke out for 73 yards and two touchdowns against the 49ers in 2016 and started his rise to start him. Also in that game, I think Cap had like 346 yards. It was was a pretty good game all around, but the Niners were awful um, that whole season. But he's now getting some of the recognition he deserves as one of the top receivers in the league, and he helps make Drew Brees look better with each week. It's incredible. I'm not saying that Drew Brees isn't spectacular, but I'm saying when you have a weapon like Michael Thomas, it's going to make you look even better. Um, And while Thomas is incredible on the outside as a receiver, the Saints also have a top dual-threat running back coming out of the backfield in Alvin Kamara. He's been on an absolute tear this season. But on Sunday, he ran for 82 yards and two touchdowns and also caught four passes for 34 yards and another touchdown. This season, I said he was a dynamic dual-threat running back. He's got 490 rushing yards and nine rushing touchdowns. And then he also has... 427 receiving yards and three touchdowns. That's nearly what? That's over 900 yards with a total of 13 touchdowns? No, 12 touchdowns. He's been unreal and is a massive reason for the Saints' success this year. And he's the only reason my fantasy football team has any wins this year, but that is besides the point. Actually, you know what? It's not besides the point because I talked about the fact that I had Michael Thomas a couple years ago. I have Alvin Kamara this year on my team, and he's my only good player. It is sad. My team was named Garoppolo's now, a pun on the wordplay word for Jimmy Garoppolo and my 49ers and the movie Apocalypse Now. Jimmy G tore his ACL and my team's in a mess. But Alan Kamara's really good and he's on my team, so there's that. <clears throat> um, the trio of Drew Brees, Michael Thomas, and Alvin Kamara is by far as good as any in the league and probably miles ahead of any other trio other than Ben Roethlisberger, Antonio Brown, and Le'Veon Bell when he plays, but maybe James Conner, the backup running back for Pittsburgh, might be even better than Le'Veon, just as a pure running back, so that's something to look into as the season progresses, but the Saints can run with anyone in the league, and they just ran the Rams out of their own building, or not the Rams building, but the Saints building, Um, but the Rams lost their first game, and you know that because I've said it like 12 times, Um, but they didn't even play that poorly from an offensive standpoint. Jared Goff threw for 391 yards and three touchdowns with only one pick. Todd Gurley didn't have his best week, only rushing for 68 yards and a touchdown, but their offense just couldn't make up for the gashing their defense took from that Saints offense. The Saints were just absolutely explosive. They were ridiculous. Um, The Rams actually, they haven't been an elite defensive team in the last month or so, but their offense has been good enough to cover cover for that because they're just simply prolific in a way that we rarely see in the NFL, and that's thanks to the breakout of Jared Goff under (laughs) Sean McVay, who's just a coaching genius. Um, And that pains me to say as a 49ers fan, but he's a genius, and Jared Goff's really good. Um, But the Rams are dealing with a lot of injuries on defense. Um, Aqib Tlaib's been sidelined for a couple weeks. Marcus Peters clearly is 100%. Their interior pass rush is elite with Aaron Donald and Adamakung Su. Uh, but other than that, their defense has been pretty mediocre. Um, and that's going to have to change if they want to justify their massive offseason where they spent more money than any other team in the NFL by far and appear to be like money laundering or something. Just they have an absurd amount of cash on hand. Um, 
they're going to need to improve on that defensive side of the football if they want to really compete for the Super Bowl with the Saints, the Chiefs, and those top dogs in the AFC. Um, this game is a great win, though, and everything the NFL could have dreamt of with a matchup of NFC heavyweights. The Saints beat the Rams 45-35, exposed some weaknesses, and knocked them off their purchase, the lone undefeated team in the NFL, an undisputed favorite to come out of the NFC. Now, though, the real fun begins. We get to learn the answers to these two questions. How will the Rams respond after a tough loss, and how will they ramp up their defense by the time the playoffs roll around before an inevitable second matchup with the Saints? And the other question is, how will the Saints build off this impressive win over a top team, and will they solidify themselves as the NFC favorites or leave the door open for a team like the Rams or some NFC North team to emerge as a true title contender? The bottom line is, with these two teams, the rest of the season is going to be fun. And I'm really looking forward to watching them grow each week. Um, and the other matchup that I wanted to talk about was the Patriots-Packers game. Because it was much more than a matchup between a six-win team atop the AFC East and a three-win team, three team struggling to keep pace in the NFC North. This matchup was the second time Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers ever faced off in their entire career. And I think it lived up to the hype. I mean, not to as much of an excitement degree as the first matchup did, but this game was fun nonetheless. Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady are viewed in somewhat of a similar light as Michael Jordan and LeBron James. Brady, who is a five-time Super Bowl champion with three MVPs, is almost universally recognized as the greatest quarterback to ever play in the NFL. Now, some people are still holding on to the belief that Joe Montana was better because he went 4-0 in the Super Bowl instead of 5-3. But most understand the impact Brady has had on the sport and the quarterback position. Tom Brady is the Michael Jordan of NFL quarterbacks. Aaron Rodgers is viewed in a similar light to NFL fans that LeBron James is viewed in for many NBA fans. Rodgers, with only one Super Bowl but two MVPs, is a player that has a growing following for being, or a growing movement behind him to be the, for him to be the greatest quarterback of all time. It's similar to LeBron James, who has had incredible success in the NBA, but not the same level of success at the highest level as Michael Jordan. Rodgers has success, and he can do things that no other quarterback has ever been able to do. But Brady, just hands down, is a more successful quarterback. And while the debate between Michael Jordan and LeBron is full of hypotheticals, and it has to be because the two can never play against each other, at least not at full strength. I mean, if you want to watch 33-year-old LeBron James take on like a 55-year-old Michael Jordan, be my guest. But that's not going to be an indication for who's the greatest. I mean, unless Michael Jordan wins, because I think that would just solidify it. And that would be hilarious to watch. Um, the thing with Brady and Rodgers is they're contemporaries. They've now faced off twice, and they exist in the same era, which is why this game is so hyped up. People wanted to see if Rodgers really could be the GOAT or if Brady was just untouchable at this point. Now, realistically, does a Week 9 matchup really indicate who's the greatest quarterback of all time? No. But it was a fun narrative. We got to see a bunch of fun videos, fun highlight clips, fun interviews throughout the entire week, so I have no problem with it. But the two QBs and their teams squared off on Sunday, and to surprise very few people, the Patriots came out on top. They won 31-17. Brady completed 22 of 35 passes for 294 yards and one touchdown, while Aaron Rodgers completed 24 of 43 passes for 259 yards and two touchdowns. Neither QB threw an interception, but Aaron Rodgers did have a fumble. 
The thing is, these two teams that the legendary quarterbacks play on, they aren't even close right now. The Patriots outmatch the Packers in nearly every facet of the game. They have a much better head coach, coaching staff, a better defense, a better quarterback. The Packers do have younger weapons on the outside, but the Patriots use their weapons in a better, more efficient way thanks to their superior head coaching. So while this game was never going to prove that Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers was the GOAT, or I guess Tom Brady is already the greatest of all time, but the matchup was pretty telling about both teams is my point, not so much about the individual quarterbacks. For the Patriots, it proved that they continue to just find diamonds in the rough or players that need a new start, and they do this better than anybody. They traded a fifth rounder for Josh Gordon, which was seen as a pretty big risk, or risk, but he has rewarded them. He has 130 yards, or he had 130 yards and a touchdown on Sunday, and on the season with the Patriots, he has 396 yards and two touchdowns, and I think he's played four or five games. They also rescued a wide receiver kick return specialist from the Oakland Raiders and Corderell Patterson, who really just seemed like he was losing his place in the NFL. And he played some running back for them on Sunday and picked up 61 yards and a touchdown on the ground while also getting a receiving touchdown. The Patriots are just simply better at scouting and maximizing the players than anybody else. Their excellence in this regard is simply unparalleled. The Packers, they showed that they just don't have the pieces to realistically compete atop the NFL, regardless of how good their quarterback is. Aaron Rodgers has won the Packers dozens of games over the year that they should have had no chance in, but their management still can't get a good defense to help lessen his workload. They have to do, or they have to, they do have good pieces on the outside, like Devontae Adams, Randall Cobb, Jimmy Graham, and Marquez Valdez Scantling, or MVS as some people call him. But they have never really given Aaron Rodgers an elite running back. I mean, the best rushing attack they've had has was like the year before Eddie Lacy got fat. But he wasn't somebody who you could just turn around and hand the ball to 25 times a game and say, get us 130 yards. Wasn't going to happen. But on top of that, <clears throat> they, didn't, they don't do Aaron Rodgers any favors on defense. They missed out on Khalil Mack in the offseason. He's now on the rival Bears, who will face the Packers twice a year for the rest of Aaron Rodgers' career. That not only hurts your chances to win the division, but also increases the probability of injury for Aaron Rodgers. The Packers rely heavily on the draft to get any players because they are not a like perfect free agent destination. It's cold. It's cold in Green Bay. You're in Wisconsin. It's a winter sport. But the Packers just traded their best defensive player at the deadline. So I think the Packers are successfully wasting the prime of Aaron Rodgers' career by not building a successful defense around them. It's a travesty. It's, it's really kind of frankly embarrassing at this point. This was a good game, though, overall. And the Patriots showed that they are still the team to beat in the AFC West, the AFC as a whole, and the NFL as a whole. They are now riding a six-game winning streak and are getting better by the week. I never doubted them because why doubt the greatness that has proven doubters wrong week after week for 18 years. The Packers showed that they can't compete against with the top dogs in the NFL or with the top dogs in the NFC North like the Vikings, Bears, and I think those two, those two teams, the Packers and the Bears, are the two teams that have a realistic shot at the NFC North. In the Green Bay, they're going to be on the outside looking in. Um, yeah, I think that's all I want to talk about from uh, 
last week's matchups, at least what was what I also talked about in the uh, in Tuesday afternoon football, which you can read on sportsball.com, posted every week on Tuesday in the afternoon. Uh, but then there were just a couple other stories I wanted to talk about with the NFL. So, let's do it. After beating the Rams this weekend, the Saints made a move. Their number two wide receiver, Ted Ginn Jr., was hurt and has been hurt, and he hasn't really been that much of a productive receiver this year. So, they held a workout over the weekend where they brought in three players. Brandon Marshall, a veteran wide receiver who's been a red zone threat for nearly his entire career, but has fallen off in these last two years trying to make an impact with the Giants and with the Seahawks. Des Bryant, who has not played this season after getting cut by the Cowboys. And then they brought another guy. I can't remember the name, and I didn't write it down. Eh. <laughs> so there's that. But they brought in those three wide receivers. They had him worked out. And then they ended up signing Des Bryant. Bryant has not played a down of football this season after he was cut by the Dallas Cowboys just before the preseason. And he hasn't had more than 900 receiving yards since 2014 when he was a top-tier receiver in the league. Now for Des Bryant, from 2011 to 2014, he was spectacular. He caught 336 passes for 4,863 yards and 50 touchdowns. He was ridiculous. And while his career numbers did drop off and his production really fell off after that, after 2014, that drop-off in production did correspond with the end of Tony Romo's career. Tony Romo played a total of five games since the end of 2014, so Dez went from having a consistent quarterback or a quarterback who would consistently target him with deep targets and jump balls thrown his way by an elite passer to having Dak Prescott just dink and dunk with an occasional deep ball. It's a completely different offensive philosophy, and it hurt Dez. Now Dez, who I don't, I'm not sure if this move is going to work out because, again, I haven't seen Dez be a really productive receiver in three years. But he's now with the Saints, who have a much more dynamic offense, or who just are, in general, just a much more dynamic offensive force. They have a real head coach in Sean Payton. They have a QB who is a whole, in a whole other echelon than Tony Romo. And no, it's, I think Tony Romo is a great quarterback. It's just Drew Brees is an all-time legendary quarterback. This is a perfect marriage for Dez if he wants to resurrect his career. Especially given that the Saints are already playoff bound and have very little money actually guaranteed to be given to Dez. So it's a good gamble. It's just like what they did with Adrian Peterson last year. They gave him barely any money. It didn't work out. They could cut him. It could happen the same way here. But if Dez ends up being a weapon, he could win some playoff games, maybe even win a Super Bowl and resurrect his career by having big plays and big games. It's a win-win for both sides if it all works out. Um... Yeah, and that was, a big, that was a big news in the NFL. But really quickly, I wanted to quick, just really quick, just talk about one thing, and it's going to be totally out of character because you've never heard me talk about this before. But here it goes. The college football playoff rankings, the second edition of them, came out this week. Now, as you know, I've made very abundantly clear, I do not watch a whole lot of college football. I just, it doesn't work for me. I like the professional game where I can get used to players playing for more than like a season or two and then moving on from their team. It makes more sense to me. It's more structured. I actually understand the rankings and like the matchups make sense. College football just doesn't do it for me. But in the second edition of the rankings, 
The four top teams that are projected to make the playoffs are number one, Alabama, who are 9-0, number two, Clemson, who are 9-0, Notre Dame, number three, who are 9-0, and Michigan, number four, who are 8-1. Now listen, I know, and I just told you this, I'm going to say it again, I don't watch college football consistently or really at all, and I don't really care about it. But I thought this was interesting for another reason. Not for an entertainment factor, not for anything like that. This is something completely different that really just kind of struck me the wrong way. I've been told for the last four years, three or three or four years, whenever Kevin Durant came to the Warriors, that the Warriors ruined basketball. They ruined the NBA because the outcome is predetermined, that they are too good and it makes the sport no fun and unfair. So, I understand, I guess, that the Warriors are good. They are better than any other NBA team. But a lot of these games that they play are interesting. Fun, close, exciting. Stars making great performances on both sides. But where is this outrage in other sports? I've made it clear that this outrage doesn't exist in in Major League Baseball and the National Football League, but... There's no sport on an amateur, like, I guess is college football technically amateur? I'm just going to call it a sports league. How about that? It's just a league. There's no league that has more just long-term stretches of dominance in an absurd way than college football. So why isn't there outrage directed at Alabama for ruining the college football season, the sport? We know it's going to happen. They're 9-0 this year. Since 2009, Alabama has won the national championship five times. That's five titles in seven seasons. That's not including this season. It could easily be six titles in eight seasons. In the regular season, not including bowl games or college football playoffs or anything, since 2009, they are a combined 133 and 12 133 and 12. That's right. I'm going to say it again. Alabama, since 2009, is 133 and 12. Why is that a team in a sport that has more viewers than the NBA, more viewers than some NFL teams, more viewers than Major League Baseball, National Hockey League, MLS, anything other than maybe the National Football League? Why is that a team in that league? can win 91.7% of their games for nearly a decade and receive no vitriol and no hate for ruining the league. What is is it that they do that they do differently than the Golden State? Huh? You can't name it. They bring in new top recruits every year. They get like the what? The top like 25 recruits from every class? How is that different than what the Warriors did? The Warriors brought in one top player. Alabama brings in like a whole new roster of like top 25 of like the top 50 recruits. They've lost 12 games since 2009. To put it in perspective, when the Warriors signed Kevin Durant, what'd they lose? They went 65 and 17 or something in the regular season that first year. I don't even have it written down off the top of my head. It's pretty impressive. Then the next year, they won, what, 57 games or something in the regular season? So they lost 15 games, and they lost, like, 25. And in the playoffs, that first year, they only lost one game. So I understand 
that seemed a little unfair, seemed a little rigged. They lost one game to the Cavs, and they very clearly could have won that game, even though it was a little sketchy. And then the next year, they won. They only lost one, two, five. They lost five games in the playoffs. So I get it. Seems like the Warriors are unfair. But again, at least their winning percentage is in like the 70s, the 60s, maybe even. It's low 70s, high 60s, including playoffs. Alabama, in the regular season, has won 91.7% of their games since 2009, nearly a decade. They've lost less than 15 games in a decade. And they receive no hate, no vitriol that any of the Warriors receive. That doesn't make any sense to me in a sport that's significantly more popular than the NBA. <laughs> so, I don't know. It just doesn't seem right to me. But I'll leave it at that, because... I'll just end up rambling and ranting about it. So <laughs> what's the point of doing that? Um, and that's all I want to talk about with the NFL. So let's move on. Because the MLB offseason is heating up. And let's start, if we're going to talk about the MLB, we got to do it right. So we got to start with the MLB team with the most World Series championships since the 2010, the San Francisco Giants. They made a gigantic move this week. They hired Farhan... I, forgive me because I can't pronounce his name yet. Farhan Zaidi, I think that's how it is, away from the Los Angeles Dodgers to become their president of baseball operations. He was their general manager of the Dodgers since 2014, and they won the division every year he was there. So yeah, that kind of seems like a pretty good hire. It's reported that his deal with the Giants is five years long and in the range of $35 million, so similar to Andrew Friedman, his former boss with the Dodgers. Now, before I get into this, I know I went on a long-winded rant about my hatred of analytics during last, week, last week's episode, and believe me, nothing's changed. But hear me out. I really like this signing. Farhan has a fantastic reputation from both his time with the A's and the Dodgers. He doesn't rely solely on analytics, like many, like many people do, like Andrew Friedman, his old boss with the Dodgers, does. He doesn't do that. He understands the importance of big-time players making big-time plays, and how the game can't just be boiled down to a bunch of numbers and a spreadsheet. Though, he obviously... I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I feel like it was mostly Andrew Friedman who was in charge of just setting the lineups and doing all that shit with the Dodgers in the World Series that basically cost them two titles. Um... But anyways, I'm excited for the signing of Farhan Zaidi, or however you pronounce it. I'll learn eventually. So give me, give me some time here. Um, obviously, he's going to use some analytics. He's obviously going to update the software on the front office's computers from Windows XP to something like what? Like Windows 10? Something, something like in the middle there. He's going to implement some of the analytics that help drive success in the regular season, but in his introductory press conference, he made it sound like he won't be a puppet master pulling the strings. He sounded like he understands that Bruce Bochy's experience and expertise will be more beneficial than a spreadsheet down the stretch of the regular season and into October and November. So I'm excited. I was never a big fan of Bobby Evans, or the GM who they fired this year. I admired the fact that he took some big swings with Matt Moore, Evan Longoria, and Andrew McCutcheon. But at the end of the day... Those trades didn't help the Giants in the long term. 
Moore had a few good starts in that first year and was fantastic in Game 4 of the NLDS, but was awful after that. I think he was the worst starting pitcher in Major League Baseball in 2015, or 2017. McCutcheon was great for us, but we traded him for some mid-level prospects. Longoria is locked in for like four more years and has a lot of money attached, and he just had his worst year ever. And we gave away a lot of decent prospects for these guys. We gave away Kyle Crick for Andrew McCutcheon. He was a top-tier reliever in the, in the National League this year. So, I don't know. I just I just wasn't a huge fan of Bobby Evans. But I, I, I admired the swings he took, even if a lot of times they were swings and misses. I loved when Brian Sabian was the GM. He took big swings, brought in guys that helped compete up the scrap heap, like Pat Burrell, Cody Ross, Jake Peavy, Marcus Grudo. He even went out and nabbed big-name guys like Carlos Beltran and Hunter Pence. Hunter Pence being a key factor in two World Series championships. My ultimate hope, though, with this new guy, Farhan Zaidi, is that he revolutionizes the Giants and brings them closer to the modern-day baseball that is successful. Because, let's face it, last year they were playing a prehistoric band of baseball. It wasn't even the baseball that I enjoy, like pre-analytics. It was like, it was, it was like 1927 baseball. But I hope that he does it with a mix of analytics and, and smart moves like Brian Sabian. I think that this was a great move, and the Giants finally have their smart guy at the top again. A guy like Theo Epstein with the Cubs, like Billy Bean with the A's, Andrew Friedman with the Dodgers, or Dave Bombrowski with the Red Sox. I think it's really exciting. Now, of course, there is the X-Factors here. I hope he doesn't trade away Madison Bumgarner, but we will have to see. I have faith in Farhan to make this team great, though, and I think it should be fun. And the next part of the MLB offseason is perhaps even more exciting than that because, I don't know, who really cares other than me, some big baseball nerd, about <laughs> a, uh, an executive hiring. Free agency. That's where it's at. The MLB offseason is and always has been the most exciting of all the offseasons for me. This is... There's just more mobility, less regard for a competitive balance, and teams dole out ridiculous contracts every year. It's the best. I can't even begin to describe how fun and exciting it was in the offseason after the 2011 World Series, watching the Angels take huge swings, signing C.J. Wilson from the Rangers. Um, I don't know. C.J. Wilson might have been 2012. Signing Josh Hamilton from the Rangers. Signing Albert Pujols to a mega deal. It was so exciting. Even though it didn't work out, it was still so exciting to watch those kind of things happen. And the reason for excitement this year is because this class is one of the deepest and most talented in years. And that should create a feeding frenzy by the time the winter meetings roll around. There are just some incredible players available. You've got some great starting pitchers like Patrick Corbin, Dallas Keuchel, a former Cy Award winner. You've got starting pitchers who've got plenty left in the tank like J.A. Happ, Charlie Morton, Lance Lynn, Nathan Avaldi, Gio Gonzalez, Hyunjin Ryu, and several others. You've got some elite relievers available. And Adam Adovino, Jerry's Familia, Craig Kimbrell, Andrew Miller, David Robertson, Kelvin Herrera, all of those guys should be great. Maybe with the exception of Adovino and Familia. But Kimbrell, best closer in baseball for the last five years. Andrew Miller, I remember his uh, postseason heroics and what was it? it? wasn't It wasn't this year. It was the year before last, I think. But he was just ridiculous. Um, David Robertson, longtime Yankee, former White Sox, very solid pitcher, and then Kelvin Herrera, ex- 
just a, a fantastic reliever. And on top of that, you've got some former MVPs on the market. Andrew McCutcheon coming off a 2020 season. Josh Donaldson, a former MVP just like McCutcheon, who's looking to reestablish some value. And then, on top of all of that, and I left off some very key like free agent hitters and defenders who were out there, but on top of all that, you have two franchise cornerstones who are both 26 years old who could run your favorite team upwards of 300 sticks, 300 million bones, $300 million, whoever you want to say it. Two of those guys are on the market. Those two guys are Bryce Harper and Manny Machado. Bryce Harper is 26 years old, already has an MVP, six all-star selections, and 184 career Jimmy Jacks. He is expected to land the richest contract in the history of MLB, and he should. There are several teams interested, obviously. It's not every day or every year that a generational talent like Harper finds himself on the open market. From all the rumors circulating right now, the teams that appear to be the most interested in him are the Washington Nationals, his former team, the Philadelphia Phillies, the NL East rival of his former team with some young start with some young studs. <clears throat> Hold on, I don't know what's happening. My mouth is like just like cramping up. <laughs> I can't speak. Um, you've got the Nationals, his old team, the Phillies, his former NL East rival, the San Francisco Giants, who just need the power, and even the White Sox who have a promising young core. And when I say the Giants, I'm not just saying that because I want him. It's very clear that I do want him on the team. The Giants have very real interest in him, as they should. And then there are teams, of course, that are always interested in any big free agent and can't be counted out until the end. But there are reasons that these teams are on the outside looking in right now for the Harper sweepstakes. The Yankees have a full outfield with a $325 million man in right field already. It's been reported by people well-connected to the Yankees that they have no real chance. It's not happening. The Dodgers, a story just broke today. It might have been yesterday. It's one of the two. uh, That they are trying to remain under the luxury tax for the next three to five seasons. And with Harper on your roster, that is basically impossible. The Cubs, while it is fun to imagine Harper and his longtime friend and fellow NL MVP Chris Bryant on the same roster, they have no wiggle room in their salary and cannot afford him without offloading several assets. Now, you already know where I think you should sign. Obviously, you've been listening to this podcast for a while. You know me. You know what I like to talk about, and you know my favorite teams, the Giants. He should sign with the Giants, obviously. I mean, seriously. This team can back up the Brinks truck for him. After they got into the tax last year, so they have no worries. They reset their luxury tax. They're fine. And not only that, would he get paid a shit ton of money? He would be playing in the most beautiful ballpark in the bigs. And that's an unbiased opinion. It's not just for me. It's universally understood that the city by the bay has the most beautiful ballpark in baseball. And he'd be in one of the best sports towns in the country. He would be the biggest star on the team and one of the biggest stars in the city alongside other elite athletes like Stephen Curry, Clay Thompson, Kevin Durant, Draymond Green, Jimmy Garoppolo, who wouldn't want to be a part of that group? Oh, and then imagine this. Imagine the all-time Giants outfield if he signs. You've got Barry Bonds, the home run king, 762 in left. You've got Willie Mays, the greatest baseball player of all time in center field. And then you've got Bryce Harper, the greatest, most prodigious power hitter since Bonds in right field. 
That would be absurd. Of course, it never happened, but that'd be crazy. But the Phillies have a boatload of cash, young talent coming out of their ass. They're in the NL East, which should be wide open next year, perhaps more wide open than any other league division of baseball. And on top of that, he would stay in the NL East, continue to terrorize the Marlins and Mets. Oh, and he would also get the chance to just smack his former team around and do it often. Then you got the Nats, his former team. But he already turned a 10-year, $100 or $300 million offer from them down. And to be fair to Harper, it would have been a bad business move to accept the trade. They didn't give him a no-trade clause, and he didn't get a chance to test the waters for free agency to get an even better offer. It's just common sense. If you're a player of that caliber or of any caliber, you have to get offers from free agency to be able to leverage those offers to get more money. It just makes sense. It's business. But right now, here are the odds via Oddshark where Bryce Harper will play game one of the 2016 MLB season. The Phillies are even. Cubs are next at plus 300. Washington Nationals are plus 400. Giants plus 750. Yankees plus 800. Dodgers plus 850. Red Sox plus 1,500. Angels plus 1,500. So... um, I think what that means, again, I'm not the best gambler or understanding of how um, these odds work in particular. I understand, like, um, <laughs> football gambling and all that. But with baseball, it's a little different. So I think this means is so if it's, say, the Cubs plus 300, you put down 100 or I, uh, I think it's $100, so you get $300 if, it, if you went there. Or a dollar, you get 300 or something like that. But... Regardless of what it means, the Philadelphia Phillies have the best odds. The Cubs are second, Nationals third, Giants fourth. Those are the top four. I'd be surprised if we signed somewhere else. I think the White Sox might have a better chance than the Dodgers, Red Sox, or Angels, but we'll see. It's all going to be very exciting. And then the other player who can get this kind of mega deal is Manny Machado. The postseason villain from this year, he was just stepping on people's ankles, not hustling, might have hurt his value. We'll see. So far in his career, he's been on the Orioles and the Dodgers. He's a gold glove caliber shortstop or third baseman with a power bat. He's also 26 years old, has 175 career homers, and is a four-time All-Star, a two-time gold glover, and a one-time platinum glover. He should have a plenty of suitors, and it sounds like teams out east want him badly. The Phillies want him, Yankees want him, Mets want him. Again, he should have plenty of options. But I think he will get a contract that rivals what Giancarlo Stanton got. But Bryce Harper should and probably will get the bigger, better deal. I ultimately think he's going to end up in Philadelphia. Manny Machado. I think that's a logical fit right there. And it seems like a much more lock of any other option. Or it seems like more of a lock for him or for any free agent that he's going to end up in Philadelphia than you can pick anything for Bryce Harper. But according to Odd Shark in Vegas, same things as before, the odds are Philadelphia Phillies lead the pack at plus 150, Dodgers plus 225. He's not re-signing with the Dodgers. They don't need him. They've got Turner at third base and Seager coming back at shortstop. They're not, they're not signing him. The Yankees plus 300, Marlins plus 800, Angels plus 900, uh, Braves plus 1400, and Nationals plus 1400. Nationals, they have um, Rendon at third base. So again, they don't need him. They won't sign him. Um, but yeah. That's that quick little free agency primer for when it all kicks off in a couple weeks. Um, next, 
the Seattle Mariners are looking to tear down their team and trade some veterans like James Paxton, Robinson Cano, D. Gordon, who knows? A call could be very exciting. But the Mariners are looking to now blow up their team for some reason because, I don't know, probably their GM, Jerry Depoto, is bored and he needs to make a trade once a week or his brain will explode. Uh, they're shopping all their veterans, which can be very exciting for teams looking to add pieces like these. James Paxton is an ace-level pitcher who struck out over 200 batters last year. Robinson Cano, an aging star, but still has plenty left in his bat if you're willing to eat the massive money left on his mega deal. D. Gordon is a former batting champ and can play the infield and center field, so that's a player that can get a massive return. And then today, early this morning, they shipped off their starting catcher to the Rays for Malik Smith and some prospects, so it's clear that this sale is for real. It's not just smoke. Um, a team that could be interested in some of these pieces is the Yankees, who are rumored to be in the mix to trade for Corey Kluber, who's on the market apparently, and James Paxton from the, Mar- from the uh, Mariners. Uh, now, when any team is looking to sell off stars, the Yankees will be involved. And rumor has it that they are looking to make runs at both Corey Kluber and Paxton. Uh, this would be a great move for them, of course, as they need both frontline starting pitchers, and they both are those. <laughs> the Yankees, don't really, the Yankees, if they somehow got both of them, which won't happen, their rotation would be Kluber. Uh, oh my God, I'm fucking forgetting his name. It'd be Kluber. Paxton, Tanaka, and then uh, the other guy, Severino. That'd be the four. And then they got, you can see Sabathia at the five. Um, but it'd be a great move for them if they got both. It's not going to happen. But they have the minor league options or the prospects to go get them if they need to. But I don't think it's going to happen. Corey Kluber is a two-time Sagan two-time Award winner, three-time All-Star. He's an ERA title. If he's on, really on the market, there will be a bidding war for him. He could win the Sagan Award this year. He could end up... In a week, he could be a three-time selling award winner. So there will be a massive market for him. James Paxton, who knows? He's never thrown more than 200 innings in a season. Last year was his best year with 160 innings pitched and 208 strikeouts, but he's kind of a wild card. But uh, we'll see. Uh, And that's all I wanted to talk about with baseball. It was a lot for, you know, (laughs) it being the offseason and nothing really happening. Um, But... I wanted to close off this episode of the podcast talking about the NBA. Now, in my outline, I wrote like a page about the Warriors being undefeated in the last eight games. We got a massive winning streak, looking like the best team in the NBA by far. And then, because this is Thursday and I've been putting off this podcast for like two days, I watched the Warriors get just absolutely smoked, just curb stomped, just obliterated, just everything short of being smothered by a pillow in their sleep by the Milwaukee Bucks. So I'm not really in the mood to talk about how good the Warriors are. They're good. They're 10-2. That's it. Steph got hurt. Steph got hurt today. He strained his uh, abductor muscle in his groin. Uh, He's getting an MRI tomorrow. Probably be out three or four games. So that's fun. (laughs) Um, But yeah, we're just going to skip right over the Warriors, if you don't mind. I don't mind because I just watched them lose. So instead, to make me feel better and in an attempt to cheer me up and lighten my spirits, we're going to talk about LeBron James and the Los Angeles Lakers, who are now 5-6. and six. So, after getting off to a slow start, I think they lost their first four games. 
but then they won uh, their next three or three of their last four to get back on track. And people seem to think that after beating the Minnesota Timberwolves last night, that they are now good and will be title contenders and right in the thick of things. Let me remind you that this team is still five and six. And last night, when they beat the Timberwolves, that set off all of this hype, <laughs> like in motion. They beat them by four points. They beat them 114 to 110. LeBron James had 24 points on 10 of 21 shooting, 3 of 9 from 3 with 11 rebounds and 9 assists. Now, people are saying that this Lakers team is good now because they beat the Timberwolves, who last night before the game were 4-7, and seven, which was a worse record than what the Lakers had. The Wolves were winless on the road, and they were playing in Staples Center. They are a franchise in turmoil. But because people in the media have such a hard-on for LeBron James and want all his teams to be fantastic 100% of the time, they overlook all of that, which is super fucking annoying. Like, unbelievably annoying. Remember, like I just said, the Wolves are a mess right now. It's not even a secret. They're very clearly just a mess. Their best player, Jimmy Butler, has openly insulted his teammates, requested to be traded, and doesn't want to play alongside Carl Anthony Towns or Andrew Wiggins. But regardless, the game between the two teams that aren't a part of the playoff picture, the Lakers and the Timberwolves, both are on the outside looking in right now, came down to the wire, and the Lakers won because Carl Anthony Towns is the softest superstar I have ever seen. Straight up. He's a big man that has no desire to grab rebounds, no desire to post up, and once you put any half-decent big man on him, he gets neutralized. It's hilarious. He, it, it's unbelievable to think that like two years ago, there was a debate as to who you would rather have to start your franchise, Anthony Davis and Carl Anthony Towns, and there was even like a real debate. No question, Anthony Davis, Carl Anthony Towns is a joke right now. And I don't want to get into some long-winded thing here, but I'll just say this. No, the Lakers are not back. They are not here, and just because they beat the Timberwolves and you don't have a comprehensive grip on how the NBA is doing outside of Golden State, Los Angeles, Boston, and Philadelphia does not mean that your assertions are correct in regards to LeBron's Lakers. They aren't it. They aren't good. They aren't going to make... They aren't even in the playoff picture right now to beat a team that's worse than them. That's how it's supposed to go. But... Because the Lakers are off to a slow start at 5-6, and six, Luke Walton is on the hot seat because of these early struggles. Last week, he met with Magic Johnson the day before they got absolutely mauled by the Toronto Raptors. Luke Walton was called into a meeting by Magic Johnson, and he got yelled at for not winning games right now, not having a winning culture, and having a bad rotation, and all of that. So, naturally, like all of LeBron's head coaches in his entire career, he's on the hot seat. Like all of LeBron's teammates are also on the hot seat. Because everybody refuses to let LeBron actually shoulder some of the blame that he deserves for playing martyr ball and caring more about his stats than he does wins. Because that's the only real argument for him to be above Michael Jordan at this point. But Magic... I got something to tell you, buddy. You can't be mad at Luke for this. You built this roster with LeBron, not Luke. Luke is not the GM. You're the president 
Rob Palinka, a guy you hired, is the GM. LeBron James consulted with you guys on all these decisions. You and LeBron decided to add JaVale McGee, who has been their best player this year. Yes, even including LeBron. You and LeBron decided to add JaVale McGee, Rajon Rondo, Lance Stevenson, and Michael Bisney, or Michael Beasley to your young core, and it somehow expected to win. You are the one who signed zero shooters, even though that is the blueprint to win with LeBron and the blueprint for success in today's NBA. You cannot blame Luke for being bad with a shitty roster that you made. You are the one who drafted Lonzo Ball instead of someone who looks like he could be the next Kobe Bryant or Paul Pierce in Jason Tatum. Come on. It would be absolutely idiotic to fire Luke Walton for this. He's a good young coach. And also, remember this. The second he's fired, the second he walks out that door, he will be rehired by the Warriors, adding to their already elite coaching staff. He literally has an open offer to come back and coach whenever he wants for the Warriors. When he does, because it's going to happen, they will have two former head coaches on their staff. Both of them were fired by LeBron. LeBron fired Mike Brown in Cleveland, and they fired Luke Walton in Los Angeles. So, go ahead and fire him, and watch what happens, and pretend to be surprised. It will be hilarious. But, after that meeting, they added another guy. The Lakers added someone else. They got Tyson Chandler after he was bought out by the Phoenix Suns and was signed to a minimum deal with the Lakers. Now, for those of you who don't know who Tyson Chandler is, he was on the 2010-2011 Mavs team that embarrassed LeBron James in his first finals with the Miami Heat. He was a defensive player of the year. He's made an all-star team. Solid player. But here's the thing. He's 36 years old, and he hasn't really been a good player since 2014. And then here's another thing, and it goes right along with the general philo- philo- philosophy of this Lakers team and most of LeBron James's teams in the past. They're just a team that almost seems like it's created by a group of guys in a barbershop or in a bar. A bunch of guys sitting down trying to build a team, and they've got their starters, they've got their guys... They've got, Le- they've got LeBron, they've got Lonzo, they've got Kuzma, they've got Ingram, they've got whoever. They've got, they've got their starting lineup, and then they're just sitting around, and they're like, they're looking for their role players. And they're like, oh man, Tyson Chandler, he was a monster in that 2011 series when LeBron lost with the Heat. He's got to be legit still. Or, oh man, dude, JaVale McGee, he cooked to the Cavs in two straight NBA finals, and he probably knows all of Golden State's secrets. Bron needs that. He'll make him a 2015 guy. Or, oh shit, Rondo was great when he played against LeBron in the playoffs when he was back with Boston, and then he energized AD last, or he was re-energized with AD last year. And because Bron is better than AD. We got to get Rondo. He'll be even better. We'll get playoff Rondo and national TV Rondo every game. That's not how you build a successful team. Sorry to break it to you. I, I would have thought you would have learned this, you know, being that this is LeBron's third team and it's like 12 different roster rebuild on those teams. But hey, you can be blissfully ignorant all you want. I'm just here to break the news to you. 
that his Lakers team isn't very good. They're doing nothing this season. Nothing. I wouldn't be surprised if they don't make the playoffs. We're all overreacting because they beat a Timberwolves team who is winless on the road. And they beat him by four points. A team in turmoil with no real offense. With superstars who don't want to play together. Come on. Let's, let's be real. Be real with yourself. This Lakers team is bad. LeBron James is on the decline. His numbers prove it. Sorry to break it to you. You can go deep dive. I know he's almost averaging a triple-double, but his numbers are all down across the board. His field goal percentage down. Three-point percentage down. Free throw percentage down. True shooting percentage down. Effective field, per- field goal percentage down. It's just what happens. He's 34 years old. He's been in the league for 18 years, 15 years, 16 years, whatever it is. It's happening. It's the decline. I predicted it last year. But it is what it is. Believe what you want. Um, and that's it, actually. That's all I have written down, all I prepared for. And I've been talking for like a damn near an hour now. And <laughs> my voice is very hoarse. Um, so, yeah, we'll probably call it a night. Uh, next week, we will get back to the regu- regularly scheduled programming. I will record it on Monday night, have an episode up on Tuesday morning. We'll be back in the schedule, back in the saddle. Don't worry. Now, if you have any questions, any comments, any criticisms, go ahead and send me an email, sportsballmailbag at gmail.com. I'll link it in the podcast description on iTunes. Leave me a nice review if you want. Leave me a mean review if you want. Leave a mean, nasty comment in the review as long as you give it five stars. That's fine. Um, I'll be back next week. This has been the sportsball.com podcast. I'm your host, Jackson Williams, and I will see you later. Later!